0: Africa's 1.2 billion people, its natural resources, and other factors have positioned the continent for meaningful economic growth in the coming years. The African Continental Free Trade Agreement, or CFTA, would expand trade and remove oppressive tariffs and other barriers that hinder prosperity in the region. In the first in a series of Jones Day Talks Africa programs, partner Javed Chaudhry discusses the CFTA and also explains what companies considering investment or expansion in Africa should know right now. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks Africa. Javed Chaudhry is a partner in Jones Day's Global Disputes practice. He advises companies on domestic and international mergers, acquisitions, and strategic alliances, as well as corporate governance, compliance, and internal investigations. Javed is a partner in charge of the firm's Middle East and Africa region. Javed, thanks for being here today.
1: Happy to be here, Dave.
0: Let's talk about the African economy from a very broad perspective high-level view. What's the economy there on the continent like today?
1: You know, the economy of Africa really uh, reflects its colonial history. Many of the countries of Africa have received their independence and uh, become, uh, at least attempted to become, independent economies that rely not just on their old colonial masters, but more. And if you think back, for example, to uh, East Africa, Independence did not come until approximately the 60s, -hmm. and that reflects the economy. Most of the trade of each individual country was with its old colonial master. Very little trade took place between African countries. Obviously, the reason for that, in part, was because there wasn't the transportation infrastructure uh, and other factors that usually allow uh, intercompany trade as for example, we have between the US, Canada and Mexico. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And this is actually the reason why this African continental free trade agreement is such an exciting development because I think it holds out the promise to alter that paradigm over several years, mind you, not overnight. Let's talk about the potential for a second,
0: and we'll get to CFTA in a second. Because of the way the, the trade and the economic patterns have developed, I guess maybe economic growth has been stifled. Is that correct? I think that's right.
1: If you think about it this way, which is that if you have markets next door, then the economies of scale work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes sense to set up a factory or set up some kind of production facility because you know, whatever it is, whether it's a, it's a mineral or an agricultural product, or is it, it's a widget or some food materials that you produce, if you know that you can market it throughout at least the neighboring countries, the investments make sense. But that has not been the case. Between the limitations of infrastructure and in some cases, tariff considerations, uh, that is just not the history of Africa.
0: So people have just basically, because of the current situation, they've given up. They don't even try and trade with neighboring countries usually. Well, that-
1: I'd like to hope they, they try, but, but the difficulties are, are many. And, you know, in, in my own observations over the years, including when I grew up in uh, Nairobi, Kenya, uh, this was very self-evident. We were much more likely to see the products of countries across oceans, you know, Europe, for example, than you would to see products made in an adjacent country.
0: Wow, lots of potential, I would imagine. All right, let's put a point on this. You mentioned tariffs. You said infrastructure issues. Any other problems that have sort of, I guess, undermined free trade between the nations on that continent?
1: Those are the main ones. There are others. Unfortunately, those are the larger issues of many developing countries around the world. It's the lack of an overall rule of law, it's uh, consistent laws and regulations, consistent standards that would apply so that you know when you're buying certain things uh, that a particular metric works or a particular safety standard works equally whether you are in country A or B. Uh, the other problem is especially this is true when you're crossing national boundaries in Africa. This is just a regrettable fact of life that, that there is a certain amount of corruption that, that has historically been associated with those kinds of border cross crossings. And as you can imagine, Dave, that leads to um, inefficiencies or outright uh, limitations on uh, the transfer of goods and services across national boundaries.
0: And certainly would scare off investors and new producers and people who want to you know, try try and leverage you know, what could be some strengths there on the continent, I would think. I mean, we look at the natural resources and the coastlines and, and, and everything else that the potential there is probably staggering. So a little frustrating, I guess, that this hasn't moved along a little quicker, isn't it?
1: I think that's very well put, Dave. You know, if you think about the population of the continent of Africa, it's soon going to be about one in in every four to five people but by the you know half a century from now. It may be one out of four people in the world on wow. the continent of Africa. And yet, if you look at the economic numbers, the collective economies of Africa represent a much smaller uh, percentage. Again, if you look at kind of how trade has worked there, the hallmark of Africa is that a lot of commodities produced there, whether it's oil and gas, it's coffee beans, it's tea, it seems that most of those things get processed off the continent. So a, a large chunk of the value chain of products is not realized on the continent itself. This is obviously not a good thing for the people of Africa. It's also not an efficient economic model. And I think you, you raised a very good point, which I w- should touch on. Uh, sometimes you obviously need technology know-how and management skills to cause that value chain to be more in that home country than someplace far away. But that needs investment and that needs certain people to come in, make that investment, bring that know-how, that technology along. But if in fact you have these market dysfunctions which have historically been true uh, on the continent, that investment is less likely uh, to be forthcoming.
0: Absolutely. And I would think good investors and smart investors would be lining up if some of these barriers and issues were taken care of, which kind of segues nicely in the next part of our conversation. Talk about the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. Uh, give us a little history. Where and when did it originate? And who were some of the early proponents of uh, CFTA, as it's called?
1: Well, it's it's been going on for a while. And I, I would say that some of the more advanced economies, if that's the way to say it, of Eastern Africa and Western Africa have been some of the main proponents. Uh, as you may know, the place where it eventually got signed was in Rwanda, which is obviously uh, not on the coast itself, but in Eastern Africa. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, the, the idea has been kicking around for quite a while, but the objective was exactly what we are talking about, to try to create an Africa-wide economic situation where some of these tariffs, some of the barriers are done away with, and the ability to have trade across national boundaries is, uh, is simplified dramatically dramatically. Uh, that's the objective. I hasten to add that I do not think it will happen overnight. It mm-hmm. will take probably two decades.
0: At least there's some progress, I would think. So how would this play out? The agreement's been ratified,
1: I suppose. No, it, uh, actually, it hasn't. It's been signed. Signed. Okay, please explain. The signed. I... Uh, so this is a long process, you know, and again, if you if you think of it this way, the end goal is a single continental market where there is free movement of not only goods, but services, investments, and so forth. Uh, So there are many different pieces to it. 49 countries signed this agreement. It's going to take 22 countries uh, ratifying it before it it goes into effect, you know, just like treaties normally work. Sure. There were many expectations that we would get to that number even by the end of this year. I think we are more likely to see that number being reached sometime in the first half of next year, I, okay. I hope faster, but uh, I wouldn't hold my breath. But sure. once it's ratified, things start to incrementally come into uh, into place. Some some benefits will be evident pretty quickly. Others will take a while. For example, the the actual instrument that was signed uh, recently, uh, the the formal document, it had a whole bunch of again, like treaties normally tend to do, mm-hmm. uh, protocols, annexes, appendices, and guidelines. Each of those are instruments that speak to some of these other things that I've mentioned.
0: Okay.
1: And so those things have still to be negotiated. Some of the things have started, but others are still in a very early stage. So, for example, tariff reductions, uh, issues around rules of origin, trade and services, uh, and importantly dispute resolution uh, modalities those are all still you know in their infancy in terms of negotiation let alone uh, execution or ratification so uh, this is the beginning of a journey right but but the good news is the journey has started at least they're talking right yep
0: Talk about how the changes proposed would impact companies not based in Africa, but perhaps are considering greater business involvement there, manufacturing, investment. Obvious example, how would this affect a U.S. company perhaps considering investment on the continent?
1: So the one thing to think about, obviously, the original objective of this thing is to create a pan-African free market. And I think just as you alluded to at the beginning of our discussion Companies coming in to invest are less likely to invest if they see lots of tariff and non-tariff barriers uh, because they know that whatever investment they make, fruits are not going to be fully realized because they are not going to be able to take advantage of broad swaths of geography. Mm-hmm. That, hopefully, uh, with this new continental free trade agreement, will change And uh, so there's going to be more of an inclination to invest. I I should pause here to make this point, which is that there have been existing, sometimes they've kind of fallen out of use, regional compacts. For example, uh, historically, you had the East African community, uh, you have something out in uh, West Africa, Mm -hmm. and there is and there have been, regional compacts which, which have worked, uh, sometimes they, as I say, they fall into disuse or the uh, political changes cause them to kind of go away. But it's very likely that certain regional uh, arrangements like in East Africa or in West Africa will uh, begin to create at least regional situations where there is less in the way of tariff, less in the way of non-tariff barriers Easier flow of products and goods across national boundaries. So, if I were a US company or, for that matter, a European company, you know, I would uh, consistent with looking at other things like whether your product has a market in that particular environment, uh, I would focus initially on those regions. and And that's what, you know, many companies have done. If you look at where US or European companies are currently invested in the continent of Africa. They tend to be in those regions. Okay, so th-
0: there's there's some good news. So there are pockets on the continent where there are arrangements in place where you know free flow of goods and logistics are decent and the tariffs aren't too heavy and so forth. That's good, so there is a way to access some of the opportunity there. The other reason that's good news, I think, is that there's a template, right? And we've seen this can work. There are other trade agreements there, maybe not continent-wide, but at least some nations are trying and with some degree of success.
1: I think that's quite right. And, you know, certainly East Africa is a good example. You know, there are setbacks from time to time because of temporary, sometimes, sometimes somewhat more permanent political situations. But basically, yes, there are templates and those have worked. I think one other factor to mention, which is going to create Interesting uh, situations in Africa in in the years to come. Not long ago, the only Investors you saw on the continent of Africa were the old colonial powers. Mm-hmm. Britain, France, Italy, Portugal, but largely the British and the French, because those were the two countries that had most of the continent of Africa as colonies. Right. As I mentioned, and that meant that they, they dominated the trade. They also dominated all kinds of other things, including cultural life. Culture, and language, a lot of things, right? Language, yeah. not least, of course. Mm-hmm. Um But, uh, you know, that is changing. And one of the things that we all know uh, that has caused a great deal of change is the arrival of Chinese investors and Chinese state-owned enterprises. Ah. And So uh, if you look at the Africa of today, even from just a decade ago, uh, if you go through, for example, an airport like Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, Mm -hmm. you will now see A large number of Chinese contractors, employees, people who are working on the continent of Africa on infrastructure projects, on various other kinds of investments. And the reason the Chinese have been able to uh, enter the market as quickly as they have, uh, one would argue, is that the government uh, in China has offered up large loans, often Mm interest-free, in return for signing up with Chinese construction companies, Chinese technology, etc. And so the ultimate object of uh, the Chinese government is to lock up large amounts of resources that exist on the continent of Africa. I see. And so the the absence in some ways of, for example, some of the traditional American companies uh, in these areas means that there's a vacuum there which has been occupied by um, uh, by chinese companies and this has all happened in a matter of about a decade i would say wow well
0: you know what they say ignore china at your peril right and they're they're not there because they don't think it's going to work out obviously they see magnificent potential there i would think
1: i think so and i think the the interesting part for me as i've watched the continent change is uh and and you know not to make a political statement about it but i think that some of the colonial powers for example the british they tended to bring some of their institutions with them technology transfer that was sort of the ethic i think with the chinese it's a very different model I, i'm not as i said i'm not necessarily making a political or other statement but for example, the big Chinese contractors that come, the money comes from China. Most of it is spent on those on those contractors who have come to do the work. In fact, it doesn't even, in most cases, touch the shores of the continent. The, the money transfers take place in the home country, meaning in this case, China. And the people who come to work, they often just set up camps and they don't necessarily interact with the local population, so there isn't the kind of cultural interaction that existed with the old colonial powers from Europe. Oh. Uh, and There isn't the same transfer of management skills or technology. It's really uh, largely a case of undertaking a project, an infrastructure project, a refinery, a port, whatever it might be, a railroad. Uh, so it's sort of a different paradigm, and I, th- I think one could argue that it doesn't create the same kinds of long-term sustainable technology transfers, management skills, Uh, that uh, ideally one would like to see if you are a person on the continent of Africa. What could be done to encourage people to stay? I think it's really a case of, and we have occasion to advise uh, various clients on this subject, regardless of who we are representing. But I think the most sustainable projects, in my experience, having now done this for over 35 years, is projects where there is a fair sharing of the benefits and burdens there is meaningful transfer of technology, meaningful transfer of skills. Because for one thing, that creates sustainable local populations, which then become marketplaces for products. I think the other thing is that if any project is not uh, properly balanced, sooner or later, there are difficulties and differences between, you know, in my example, let's say uh, uh, an African state-owned enterprise mm-hmm. and a foreign contractor. And if that happens things usually fall apart. You know, projects don't get finished or they don't get finished properly or they don't get finished on time. And at the end of the day, the value that one would hope to get is not obtained by either side with a lot of ill will that follows it. And, you know, unfortunately, we see these situations with a lot of large resource projects. You know, in in extreme cases, as we know, historically, that leads to nationalization Mm -hmm. of uh, projects. In other cases, it just, results in great inefficiencies. Uh, inefficiencies and as you said hard
0: feelings and you have bad experiences out there and that can scare the next investor or the next group off sadly. Indeed. Let's talk about CFTA a second specifically. As we talk about this this sounds to me to probably anybody listening to this program. This is a good idea and a lot of people would benefit from this. Literally billions maybe ultimately. What's the holdup? Is there organized opposition? You said it could be a couple decades, and that's understandable. I know you don't turn a ship around you know that quickly and so forth, but why aren't people more eager? I mean, almost universally, why isn't there a lot of enthusiasm for this, do you think?
1: Dave, one of the interesting facts of Africa is, uh, first of all, as you know, it's it's a very large continent, 54 countries, 1.2 billion people, and the cultural differences between a Morocco and a Democratic Republic of Congo versus, uh, you can go down that list, obviously, yeah. are, are, are great. And it took us a while even to negotiate here in North America, NAFTA, which obviously has now been amended. And uh, as you look at what one would think would be logical and North America trade agreements, They haven't come about. They haven't come about for many reasons, including, uh, you know, people protecting certain domestic markets, Mm -hmm. it's uh, cultural issues, it's Mm -hmm. geographical issues, and, you know, obviously, above all, it's economic issues. And I think the problem in Africa is that there is a great diversity of levels of development. And I I think that for some countries, and, you know, you could just uh, throw up. Throw a dart at any one of the countries, almost any part of Africa. There are great disparities in terms of the level of economic development and um, uh, understanding of the benefits of of something like uh, this free trade agreement. So, anytime you are attempting uh, to affect a change, which is going to mean that at least in the short term, certain domestic producers of uh, widgets. Whatever they might be, okay. or maybe disadvantaged, there is a there's a great reluctance to agree to that change, okay. which is why this trade agreement, not unlike trade agreements in other parts of the world, uh, has taken a while. But I, I think that at least the more the more visionary leaders uh, in the in, on the continent appreciate that the benefits in the medium term will be. Great and to the benefit of everybody, just like any free trade arrangement is, as in my judgment, NAFTA always has been. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as we begin to have these various pieces that I described, you know, tariffs and services and uh, um, border measures and so forth, all this start to improve. It will improve the lot of all of the people who are the beneficiaries of, uh, of this trade agreement. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I think it starts with the various regions. I think, you know, West Africa, however you define it, will come together. That central part of Africa, the Francophone African countries, I think there are some logical ways in which they will initially open up, at least to that region. East Africa is already well along, likewise parts of South Africa. But eventually what has to happen, and I hope this uh, trade agreement will lead to that, is that it will become one integrated market in which, you know, from the perspective of, for example, a U.S. company, it makes sense to come and set up shop in a Kenya or a Ghana, and then use that as the hub from where to market to a large number of countries in the vicinity, because uh, the infrastructure will have improved, the transportation will have improved, but importantly, there will not be the tariff or non-tariff barriers that prevent this from happening today. To, to give you an example, if your truck of whatever it is, whether it's perishables or non-perishables, has to sit at a border post for endless hours and sometimes days, uh, that is not the making of um, an efficient flow of
0: trade. I think obviously the fact that conversations have started, the countries are talking, and hopefully this is well on its way. Javed, this has been more than interesting. I'm fascinated. This is a great topic. Let's talk again soon. It doesn't have to be just about CFTA, but about Africa in general, what Jones Day is doing there, where you see some trends long-term. And we'd love to hear more very soon if we could do that.
1: Well, I, I hope so. Let me let me make one point, which is oftentimes, which I think is very important to Jones Day clients and, and to U.S. and other companies around the world. Uh, one aspect of Africa, which has personally frustrated me is that people don't appreciate the opportunities there. You know, you have an amazing baseline of commodities. You have this growing population. You have uh, increasingly pockets of very well-educated and underemployed people. So whether that is a market for you or a place where you can do production of various things, there are many opportunities to, to be had. And I think one thing that all companies, whatever your business, whatever your trade is, is to keep a closer watch on, on Africa. I'll give you one example. I was recently very pleasantly surprised to discover a group of people writing apps in East Africa. I would never have expected that.
0: Me neither. And yet
1: yet it's, it's going on there. So if you think about how sometimes unusually interesting uh, business ideas get created in the most unlikely places, you know, Africa should be on your list, whether you are an infrastructure player or in, in the high-tech space. And so I hope as as we go forward here, companies around the world will really pay attention to what's happening in Africa, see as, you know, these tariff and non-tariff barriers come down, that there is great opportunity there. And, you know, in the long run, it will help all of us, right?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Very high ceiling, lots of potential. It's going to be fun and fascinating to watch this play out, I think, over the next several years. Uh, Gervais, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Well, I uh, I enjoyed this, Dave. You can
0: find Gervais' complete biography along with information on the firm's global disputes practice and its work in Africa at jonesday.com. Subscribe to Jones Day Talks on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. And don't forget to check out some of our previous programs while you're there. There's a lot of great information there from dozens of Jones Day lawyers. Thanks for listening to Jones Day Talks Africa. I'm Dave Dalton. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.